Blog Talk Radio. We want to welcome you to Blog Talk Radio Ministries. God bless you. <clears throat> we are also on Rumble. You can go to our Facebook to give information for that. We changed up the sermon today. Chaplain Durden is doing some data information work for the for the ministry. We're kind of behind, and he's helping us. So instead of him teaching, we're going to push that back on another date because we need this information that he's assisted us uh, with that today. All right, we're going to bring in a sermon, the Ministry of Deliverance, Derek Prince. By Reverend Derek Prince. To build a kind of relationship, a certain measure of confidence, I'm going to tell you who I am and where I came from and how I, where I came from and how I got where I am tonight. And I didn't get here in five minutes, believe me. I was uh, born in India, the son of a British Army officer, and I come from a very military family. Every male member of my family whom I've ever known has been an officer in the British Army. I was educated in Britain and had the privilege of the best education that Britain could offer. I was educated at the most famous of Britain's educational institutions, Eton College and Cambridge University. The only other university that rivals Cambridge is Oxford. They are about the two outstanding universities of Britain. And I had the privilege of being what is called a scholar of both institutions. I was one of 14 boys elected to Eton College as a scholar at the age of 13. At the age of 18, I was the senior scholar of King's College, Cambridge. Later became the senior research student of the university in philosophy for two years and was at that time the youngest person ever to be appointed to a resident professorship in my college. All this in the field of classical languages and philosophy. At that time, I was a member of the Anglican Church, which is the State Church of Britain. I had been christened as an infant, they tell me. And when I was a boy of 15, I was confirmed. The Bishop of Oxford laid his hand upon my head. But as I heard an Episcopalian say once, it was empty hands on empty heads. And I reached the age of 25 without ever having met a person who testified from experience that he had been born again of God. I did not know there was such a thing as salvation. Then I was called up into the British Army in World War II, and because of my philosophical background, I really was a kind of I don't know what I could say, hippie exactly, but I was about a generation ahead of my time in many of my ways of thinking and behavior. I took the stand of a conscientious objector and became what you would call a hospital attendant for five and a half years in the British Army. It was a distinct departure from the family tradition, and the family made me very conscious of it too. Well, when I went into the British Army, I realized that for the first time for many years I wouldn't have access to all the books and all the libraries that I wanted. And my big problem was what was I going to take with me to read. And I sat down and figured it out, here I am, a philosopher, I'm supposed to know about philosophy, but there's one book of philosophy in the world which is the world's most widely read and most influential book, and I don't know much about it. 
That was my personal evaluation. The book, of course, that I had in mind was the Bible. I considered it to be a book of philosophy, and I at least had the sense to recognize that it was by far the most widely read and influential book in the history of the human race. So, I did a rather decisive thing. I bought myself a black Bible and went into the army determined to read my Bible. And I said to myself, I will treat it just like every other book I've read. I'll start at the beginning and read it right through to the end. So the first night I was in the army, in 1940, I opened my Bible at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, started to read. Well, I discovered all sorts of complications. Anybody seen regularly reading a Bible in the army is regarded as a kind of strange character. But when I wasn't reading the Bible, I was behaving in a very different way from the way most people behave who read the Bible. I was a very, very heavy drinker of whiskey. I was a habitual blasphemer, of which I'm deeply ashamed. And I led a life of godlessness. However, as I went on reading the Bible, it began to change me. I didn't understand how, I couldn't explain it, but the things I used to like no longer attracted me so much, and I felt an awful emptiness, a void, an insufficiency in my life. Up to that time, I'd always felt I was equal to anything. I could handle anything. Anything I decided was right, and if people didn't agree with me, that was their mistake. And I didn't argue with them, I went my way. Well, during nine months of reading the Bible publicly every day in the British Army, no one ever came to me as a Christian and told me that they knew Jesus Christ or offered to help me spiritually in any way. However, at the end of that time, another soldier who was not at that time converted discovered a small Pentecostal assembly, an assembly of God's church in the town to which we had just been moved. And he came to me apologetically one afternoon and said, um, I found the place, would you like to come with me? And it was an assembly of God. So I said, I don't believe in religion, but I've got nothing better to do, so I'll come with you just as a sightseer. So that's how I went to my first Pentecostal meeting. I didn't know it was a Pentecostal meeting. I didn't know Pentecostal people existed. I had never heard of the Assemblies of God in my life. As a matter of fact, I'd never even heard of the Baptists. When I got there, the moment I walked inside the door, I knew they had something I didn't have. I didn't know what it was. It didn't take me 30 seconds to discover that. And furthermore, I knew they knew I didn't have it. <laughs> Which was embarrassing. Well, the sermon was a, what I would call a somewhat typical Pentecostal sermon of those days. We won't go into it. It went up and down across the Bible, forwards and backwards, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and I could not follow the thread of the message. But I knew he was talking about something that they had and I didn't have. And I knew he knew what it was and I didn't. So when he came to the end of the message, he did what, of course, is perfectly normal to people such as yourself, but was entirely strange to me. He said, every head bowed, every eye closed. 
and a complete silence fell on the congregation. Now he said, anybody who wants this, whatever it was, put your hand up. And I was extremely indignant that to think that I'd been lured into a place where people would do something so embarrassing as to ask me to put my hand up in public. And I sat there in that awful silence and two inner voices were speaking to me, one in each ear. And one voice said, now if you put up your hand in front of all these old ladies, you're going to look very silly, you're a soldier in uniform. The other voice said, if this is something good, why shouldn't you have it? And I was paralyzed. I was not able to respond. And I just wondered how long the silence could last before somebody would do something. In those days, they didn't even have background music. They didn't play the piano or the organ or anything. And then, the first miracle that I ever experienced happened, and it happened to me. In the midst of that silence, I saw my own right arm go right up in the air and I knew I had not raised my arm. And that frightened me and embarrassed me. And I thought, how did I get to a place where something else can raise my arm for me? <laughs> well, the moment I raised my arm, everybody gave a sigh of relief and they went on with the service. That was all they'd been waiting for. And I didn't get anything, I didn't know what I was supposed to get, but there was an elderly couple there that kept the boarding house and they invited me and the other soldier home for supper. And I thought, well, it'd probably mean more religion, but a good supper is worth a little religion anyhow. So I went home with them, and when I got to their home, it was the same atmosphere, but twice as strong in their home as it was in the church. And we had a good supper, and then they started to pray which was entirely unexpected and there was about seven people or eight people sitting around a big oval table and um, they didn't give me any warning they just began to pray and I noticed they were praying around the table in turn and uh, the realization came to me my turn was coming and quickly <laughs> I had never prayed out loud in public on my own in my life and I had no idea what to say. I was paralyzed with fear. But when the moment came, I opened my mouth and I heard myself say these words, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when I said that, my mouth shut like a trap and I couldn't say another word. And I didn't need to. Well, I'd made this contact, I got involved, but I still hadn't got it. And I couldn't understand the language those people used. It just didn't mean anything to me. Actually, if they'd spoken Greek, I would have understood them better. So, about five nights later, I came to the point where I decided I had to settle it for myself. And I didn't know what I was settling or how to settle it. But in an army barrack room, late at night, I decided to pray until something happened. And round about midnight, something did happen. The Spirit of God fell upon me. Now, I had never seen this happen. I'd never been in a meeting. And smote me to the floor. And I spent more than an hour on the, on the floor under the power of God. And I had some very strange experiences. They would frighten the average Pentecostal. And I had no idea, no background, no knowledge, no contact of any kind. 
But when I eventually rose from the floor, I knew that Jesus Christ is alive. That's all I knew, but that I did know. And that one revelation of Jesus Christ entirely changed the course of my life. About two weeks later, slightly less, in the same army bathroom, about 9.30 at night, God baptized me in the Holy Spirit. I hadn't been around long enough to know you have to go to a church to get it, so I got it in the bathroom. And the first time I spoke in an unknown tongue was in that bathroom. The first person who heard me was a soldier who came back from a dance. And I tried to tell him what had happened to me and discovered I'd lost the ability to speak English, so I told him in another tongue. Fortunately, he wasn't religious. He was broad-minded. His attitude was, well, everybody's got their right to do their own thing. And if that's just... <laughs> I'm so glad he wasn't a Baptist. <laughs> well, that was my contact with God. You may think it's strange, but it stood the test of time, because that was in 1941, and to me it is more real, more wonderful, and more powerful today. Very shortly after that, the army sent me overseas. I spent three years in North Africa in the desert and ended up in the country that was then known as Palestine and finally ended up in Jerusalem and finally ended up on the Mount of Olives. That was my last assignment in the British Army. And there in Jerusalem, I stepped out of the British Army and became a missionary to the Jewish people the same day. God called me and he showed me the door was open and I was to enter then or never. And that was 1936. I've been in full-time, full-gospel ministry from then until now. And over the course of the years I've worked with Pentecostal people in Denmark, Sweden, Britain, Canada, the United States, and East Africa. So I'm not ignorant of Pentecostals. That's one thing you can be sure. About the same time that I became a missionary, I married the lady who is still my wife. She was a missionary already in Jerusalem at the time. I also became father on one day to eight girls, which was another adjustment that we won't go into in detail. My wife had eight girls, six Jewish, one Arab, one English girl. So the day I married her, I became father to the girl. That too has stood the test of time. All those girls are now grown up and married except one who is single, a nurse in London. Years later, we took one more little girl, an African girl in East Africa, She's the only one that's living at home with us now. She's 14 years old at the present time. Very sweet, spiritual, Christian girl. My wife and I now have well over 20 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Furthermore, Stephen, who's behind the table, will shortly be a father and that will be our third great-grandchild. Unless, of course, it's twins, in which case we'll get three and four. <laughs> so that's a little sort of background. Now, for eight years, 
or more. My wife and I ministered in London, England. We had what you would call a Pentecostal assembly or a Pentecostal mission there. There's a lady here tonight from Russia who incidentally met us in Jerusalem, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our home in the midst of the first Arab-Jewish war when the shells were flying over and is a, a worker for the Lord lives in Canada but I'm just reminded of that because I see her sitting here tonight she remembers us and our work in London then in 1956 I was invited to go to East Africa to work with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada and to be the principal of a college they had in Kenya for training teachers for African schools so from 1957 to 1961 my wife and I worked with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada in East Africa and during those five years we saw an almost continuous move of the Spirit of God amongst the young people the young African people with whom we worked multitudes of them were saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit and at times we had sovereign moves of God when I would say all the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit were in operation amongst those young people. I have the greatest faith in the spirituality of young people. I never believe in treating them like children. Actually, it's the other way around. It's the adults that you have to come down to. Uh, the earlier you get into it, the easier it is to accept it, to believe it, to understand it, and to move it. Well, at the end of 1961, my wife and I came home from the mission field on our way to Canada, and we stopped off in my wife's native country, which is Denmark. And we had a few days around Christmas where I was not preaching and we were staying with my wife's sister right at the north end of Denmark in an area that the Danes call Jutland. It's a um, quite remote area, not highly populated, and I've been there several times. I enjoy it. There's a particular cliff overlooking the North Sea, rather wild and rugged, that I always like to get out to when I'm there and take time alone with the Lord and if I frighten anybody it's only the seagulls. Well I was out there at this period and God began to speak to me and I want you to understand he did not speak with an audible voice. He spoke inwardly to my spirit. I have once heard God speak audibly. Uh, but this was an inner communion between God and my spirit but it was very real and I could put it specifically in words what God said and when I was on the cliff top God spoke and he said now you've been a missionary in two countries you're the principal of a college and he reminded me of various other things and you're a member of a denomination and you have a pension scheme and he let all that sink in and then he asked me a very unexpected question he said are you satisfied or do you want to go further and the question shocked me you know why I'm ashamed to admit it but I really didn't think there was any further to go 
look back and I'm embarrassed, but I thought I had it all. Have you ever heard Pentecostals say that? <laughs> I have. And I, well, I mean, I wasn't deliberately conceited, but I thought I knew everything that was practically necessary to know in the ministry. I knew about salvation, healing the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. I believed in the second coming of the Lord, and so on and so forth. But the Lord said, are you satisfied, or do you want to go further? And I've learned by experience not to trifle with God, and not to say things to God that I'm not prepared to stand behind. So I said, Lord, give me a little time to think this over, and I'll give you my answer. So I took about two or three days pondering this in my mind, and considering what was involved. Then I got back to the test top, and I got in touch with the Lord, and I said, I'm ready with my answer. And oh, it embarrasses me to think, but this is what I said, Lord, if there is anything further, I want to go further. The moment, no, I said, I said something else. I said, Lord, I am not satisfied. If there is anything further, I want to go further. And when I said, I'm not satisfied, for the first time, I really understood how dissatisfied I really was. See, I believe before God can do much with us, we have to come to what I would call the moment of truth, where we see it and say it like it is. And when I said I'm not satisfied, at that point, I realized what a depth of dissatisfaction there was inside me that I'd been trying to cover up. And I find multitudes of men in the ministry are in the same condition. They are trying to persuade themselves, well, this is all there is, there isn't more, that's the way it's done. Maybe it was different in the New Testament, but that's not the way we can have it today. Well, when I gave God this answer, he gave me his answer. It was very, very prompt, very clear, very practical. That if you want to go further, there are two conditions. First of all, all progress in the Christian life is by faith. If you're not willing to go forward in faith, you cannot go forward. Secondly, if you are to fulfill the ministry that I have for you, you will need a strong, healthy body, and you're putting on too much weight. You better see to that. Well, that was Denmark at Christmas time, and I'll tell you, if there's ever a place not to start attending to the weight problem, it's Denmark at Christmas time. Because if anybody knows how to celebrate Christmas from the point of view of food, I'd put the Danes at the top of the list, and I've been in a good many countries. But I thank God that he did speak to me. I took heed, as even as in the matter of weight. Later, God showed me a weight that I was to keep. And, and I do regularly check myself and I praise him for it and I look back now over what happened since and I realize I had to have a healthy body to go through what followed later but I didn't know what lay ahead at that time but I had made a fresh commitment to the Lord I had given the Lord liberty to lead me on and I believe if I had not answered God that way at that time, my ministry would have leveled out on a plateau and I would never have gone any higher the rest of my days.
I would have still been a minister. God would have still honored me, but I would have set a ceiling to my ministry. Within a few months after my giving God that answer, the whole course of my life began to change in ways that I did not plan and had not premeditated. I expected to go to Canada, spend a year there in deputation work, and return to East Africa. But when I got to Canada, it didn't work out that way. I don't want to go into the details, but I came south of the border, and God opened a way for me to move to the United States. I never planned it. And you'll understand we had our little African girl with us, aged about three and a half at that time, no real documents, no birth certificate, and not adopted. Had we from outside the United States applied to immigrate, we would have never got in. But I just blundered in, threw myself on the mercy of the immigration department, and they arranged it all. So here we are. What's that? Ten years later, just about. And uh, about three years ago, I became a United States citizen. All that was entirely unexpected. I never anticipated coming to the United States. Though I'm happy that I'm here. Well, then I became, for a while, associate pastor of an Assembly of God church in Minneapolis. And uh, that was just really a, a time of personal fellowship with the pastor, who was an old friend of mine. And then I moved to Seattle and became the pastor of an independent Pentecostal assembly in Seattle. Meanwhile, the Lord was beginning to put me through what I would call a postgraduate course of education. This is the answer to do you want to go further? And there are two particular areas. One was the nature of the local church, which I'm not going to try to go into at all. The other was the area of demonology. Now, I, I was not a volunteer in this field. I want you to know that. I was conscripted. God got me into it in such a way that I either had to back out completely or go through. And I'm going to tell you a little bit tonight of how the Lord led me into this area of dealing with demons or evil spirits and bringing deliverance to those who are tormented and afflicted. But I want you to understand it was a sovereign decision of God on the basis of my willingness to let him lead me on. When I'd been in Seattle a short while, a few months, one day I received on a Saturday morning early a phone call from a Baptist pastor who was spirit baptized and whom I had come to know. It was one of the most unusual phone calls I'd ever received. He said, we have a lady here, I think he said, who is demon-possessed, and she needs deliverance from evil spirits. And, she said, and he said, the Lord has shown me that you and your wife are to be the instruments of deliverance and that it's to be done today. Well, in those days, you didn't get phone calls like that from Baptist pastors. I mean, things are changing now, but in those days, that was unusual. Well, I don't let anybody dictate to me with their revelation. So I'm, I sent a quick telegram up to the Lord while I was on the phone. I said, Lord, is this all right? And he said, this is it. 
So I said, all right, bring the lady around. I had no idea what to expect. Well, while we were waiting for the Baptist pastor and the lady to arrive, a Presbyterian couple whom we knew who were spirit baptized dropped in to visit us. So when the lady arrived with the pastor, well, with the two Presbyterians, my wife and I, and incidentally our little African girl. Now I was distinctly skeptical. I was not convinced that the man's diagnosis was correct, and even if it was, I wasn't by any means, I just didn't have any idea of what I wanted to do about it. But I thought I'll play this thing by ear, I'll go along step by step, and I'll check everything mentally with reference to the Word of God. So the man said, he, he said this, he said, she's already been delivered from a demon of nicotine, and I thought, a demon of nicotine? But, he said, there are others. So I didn't say yes, and I didn't say no. I said to myself, we'll see. So I planted her down in a chair in the living room, stood in front of her, and now let me make it clear that in what I'm telling you now, I'm not saying this is the right way to do it. I'm just saying this is the way it happened. I'm not saying that necessarily this is how it should have been done. So he planted her down in a chair, stood in front of her, and virtually challenged Satan in the woman. More or less demanded that Satan manifest himself in the woman. And I sat there and watched, and after a while I saw a very clear change in the woman's features. I cannot exactly describe it, but one thing that I noticed, and I have never forgotten, was that there was a kind of yellow sulfurous glare appeared in each of her eyes. Well, this good Baptist friend of mine had the impression, like most people do, that demons are death and you have to shout at them. I want to tell you that is a complete mistake and all you're doing is wasting your strength. Well, after he shouted at these demons, supposed demons, for quite a while, it was obvious that he'd stirred them up, but he wasn't getting any results. So I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. I always need somebody to give me a little prod to get going, you know. And I thought about all the rules I knew in my mind, and I thought, I'll try them. So I knew in theory the way it should be done. So when he got tired of shouting, I stepped in front of the woman, and I said this. I said, now you evil spirit that's in this woman, I'm talking to you and not to the woman. And I said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you to answer me, what is your name? And without a moment's hesitation, there came out of the woman's mouth one word, hate. And when she said hate, it was like liquid hate flowing out of her. And every feature of the woman's face registered pure, undiluted hatred. There was no doubt in my mind that's what it was. Well, then I started what I would call a psychological warfare. Uh, and my only real principle that I worked on was whatever the devil said, I was going to say the opposite. <coughs> so I said, I knew this was the theoretically right thing to do. I said, now in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. And I knew I was not talking to the woman, nor was it the woman answering me. And later I discovered that most of the time she was not even aware of the words that were coming out of her own mouth. I said, come out. 
and it answered me in a sneering, contemptuous voice, I'm not coming out. I've lived here 35 years. This is my house, and I'm not coming out. Well, immediately I checked in my mind, and Matthew 12, 44 came to me, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, wanders through dark places, then says, I will go back into my house from whence I came out. I thought, that is in line with Scripture. So I said, well, you will come out. And it said, I won't. And I began this psychological warfare. I used a great deal of my own determination, as much scripture as I could remember, and the name of Jesus. And we went at it. And gradually I beat it down. And I beat it down in a series of stages. The first one was, it said, well, if I come out, I'll come back. And my only principle was contradicted. So I said, no, you come out and you stay out. Well, then it said, well, even if I come out, my brothers are here and they'll kill her. Now, I didn't know anything about his brothers, but I was picking up a lot of useful information. Uh, and I said, no, you'll come out first and your brothers will come out after you. So we, we went through that one. And I beat him down to the point where he had to admit that. Well, he said, even if we come out of a woman, we've got her daughter and we'll kill her. Well, I didn't know at that time the woman had a daughter. So I said, when my principal went on, I said, no, you'll come out of the woman first and you'll come out of her daughter afterwards. Well, at that point, it changed its tactics. She was an ordinary, middle-aged, well, not middle-aged, youngish, middle-aged housewife. I suppose she was about 40 years old. Not particularly strong, not in any way an impressive or unusual personality. When we'd got this far, her arms rose up, her hands crossed over her throat, and she began to strangle herself with her own arms. And I mean, she was not praying. She was then purple in the face and her eyes were popping out. So the Presbyterian brother and I rose up to pull her arms away from her own throat. And when we tried, it took our united total strength to get that woman's arms away from her throat. She had a strength that was absolutely supernatural. Well then, it came out. The first one, hate. How did I know it came out? Well, let me tell you this. Inside me, there was something like a balloon filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I could feel this pressure in me pressing against this thing in the woman. But when it came out, the pressure in me subsided. And at the same time, the woman's head bent forward and dropped limp. And in that moment of relaxation, I knew that evil spirit had left her. But it wasn't but a few moments before she became rigid and tense again, and I realized the next one had come to the surface. Well, after this, I had a kind of general idea of what to do and what to expect. So I spoke to the next one, said, what is your name? And I think it said fear. Now, I'm not going into all these details. I'm just showing you how I got launched. But that first session lasted five hours. And in the course of it, eight distinct spirits named themselves, every one of them manifested themselves in a characteristic way 
and came out of the woman. I do not know that I remember the law, but I remember hate, fear, envy, pride, and then self-pity. And when I heard self-pity, I thought to myself, that is a useful piece of information, that there's a spirit of self-pity. And then the next one was infidelity, which I did not understand then, but I do now. However, the woman was not yet free, this was very obvious. So I spoke again, and the next spirit named itself, and it said, death. And again, I did a little, I, all the time I was mentally checking with the Bible. I thought, oh, death, and then I thought, the sixth chapter of Revelation. A pale horse and a rider was called death. And I thought, death is a personality, it's not just a condition. See, I, I mean, I saw all the way along that what I was dealing with answered the scripture. Now, I'm again not recommending necessarily that you do this, but I began to talk to this spirit, and I said, when did you enter into this woman? And it said, three and a half years ago, when she nearly died on the operating table. And I checked later, and I discovered she'd had major surgery three and a half years previously, and almost died on the operating table. Now, let me pause for a moment and say I learned something intensely useful. There is a spirit of death, and it kills people who would not necessarily otherwise die. Now, in the recent conference, a doctor from Palmdale, Dr. Lester Nichols, who's the superintendent of a hospital there, the administrator, some of you may know him, handed me his card. I've lived, I've stayed in his home. And he incidentally said this. He said, here's my card, Brother Prince, you can use my name at any time you wish. So I will. Years later, when I was in his home, and dealing with people who needed deliverance, and I spoke about the spirit of death, he told me, he said, that accounts for something in my medical experience. Because he said, there are times when I have patients who die for no adequate physical reason. And he said, I am convinced that they are killed by that spirit of death. Now, if you read in the book of Revelation, you find that the third part of men were killed with the beasts of the earth and with the sword and with death. Isn't that a surprising statement? If you're killed, you're dead. So what does it mean to be killed with death? It means the operation of this spirit. Now, I've dealt with this spirit many, many times since then. In fact, I have a, a kind of reaction to it. I can frequently identify it when it's in a person. Let me give you another example, because I'm, and I'll go back to my story, but it just comes to me so vividly. In Miami, in an Assembly of God church there, I was conducting a deliverance service, and I had met a woman, in fact I had dinner in her home, my wife and I with this couple, and she was a thin, what I would call miserable looking person, you know, a Christian, but never had joy. And I did something I very rarely do. I said, Sister, will you let me tell you that I believe you need deliverance from the spirit of death? And if you come Friday evening, I'm going to pray for you. So she, there she was. Well, I saw her in the front row, 
And I sat down and this thing manifested itself. And I said to her, when did you enter into this woman? And it said when she was two years old. And I said, how did you get in? And this is the answer. Oh, she felt kind of neglected and unwanted. And she was delivered. She's today a healthy, happy Christian woman. Her home has been set in order. Her marriage is successful. Her children are doing well. This is the result of this deliverance. Well, now we'll go back to this woman. When this spirit death had told me these things, I commanded it to come out. And my wife will bear me witness. This was a major conflict. It took maybe 30 minutes to get that one spirit out. And when it came out, the woman's face was exactly like a death mark. It was entirely colorless. It was like wax and it was cold. And she was stretched out on her back on the floor. Any person walking into the room would have said without a moment's hesitation, there is a corpse on the floor. When the spirit left, she lay there for about ten minutes, then put her arms in the air and began to praise the Lord in unknown tongues. Now, you may say, Brother Prince, that couldn't happen, but it did happen. She was a converted woman, had made a profession of faith in a Baptist church, been immersed in water on profession of faith, been to a well-known Episcopal church in Seattle, Washington, which is known probably to everybody here, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then brought to us for deliverance. That's the way it was. Well, this lifted me onto a new plane of understanding and ministry. I immediately began to understand things that I've never been able to understand or to deal with before. And I, I'll give you two outstanding examples from our ministry in London, where in each case I had failed. And I think our sister here will remember these two persons. One was a young man who was saved in a street meeting, where we preached regularly three times a week in street meetings. He had a marvelous conversion. He became a dedicated, keen Christian worker. If there was one person I could rely on to give out tracts, come to street meetings, do anything like that, it was this young man. He received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I heard him speak in tongues many times. Nevertheless, he had a problem with lust that he never could get freedom from. He did not commit immorality, but he was never truly free. And several times he came to my wife and me and said, pray for me, I need help. And one time I remember we prayed till two o'clock in the morning with him. And he said, it's, it's in my hands, it's in my fingers, I can feel it there. But we never got him delivered. Now if anybody said that to me today, in five minutes I would know what to do. But I look back and I recognize that I was not able to minister to the need of that young man, a dedicated Christian who was my own spiritual child, and yet through lack of discernment and knowledge, I could not help him. Another was even more remarkable. It was a Jew from Germany. And he and his brother were the only two members of the entire family that escaped Hitler's gas chambers. His brother became an atheist, 
and he became a Christian. And he, as a Jew, he made a bold public confession of Jesus Christ, which you know is not easy for Jewish people. He was undoubtedly soundly converted. And I prayed with him more than once and heard him speak fluently in an unknown tongue. And I mean, I know German, and I know it wasn't German. But he had a terrible mental torment. He had an awful sense of guilt and a sense of a need to punish himself. And he told me, he said, on one occasion, I put my fingers in the door and slammed the door on my fingers to punish myself. Now, this isn't pleasant, what I'm going to say, but on another occasion, he said, I actually drank my own urine. And then he would come to us and say, can't you get this devil out of me? And you know what I answered? I said, you can't have a devil in you. You're saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. I've heard you speak in tongues. There can't be a devil in you. Eventually, he went to a neurosurgeon and had an operation on the lobes of the brain, which severs something. And uh, he's about three quarters of a person today. He could have been delivered, but I didn't know. I didn't understand. And I failed him, not through lack of will, but through lack of knowledge. Now that's two outstanding cases. From the moment I dealt with that woman in our home, I knew what I should have done. There wasn't a shadow of doubt in my mind. Well, the woman went, and about three or four days later she phoned us and said, I'm having trouble, they're trying to come back. Now, had I known then what I know now, I would have warned her in advance. It was to be expected. She said, come over and try and help me. So my wife and I got in the car, drove over, and visited her in her home. And I discovered that she had three children. The youngest was a girl of six and was at home when we arrived. And as we were in the home talking, I was observing this little girl of six. And there was something strange about her. She was shy, withdrawn, thin, unhappy. And the thing that impressed me was the moment I looked at her, she averted her eyes. She would not look me in the face. So after a while, I said to the mother, I said, I know the devil is a liar and you can't trust him. But I believe that when those demons said they were in your daughter, they were telling us the truth. Well, she said, will you pray for my daughter? I said, yes. So we made an appointment and exactly one week later, the following Saturday, the lady came with her daughter, six years old. Incidentally, the child was graded retarded at school. And I will not go into the details, but it took us over three hours to deliver that little girl at six. And several of the same kind of spirits that had named themselves out of the mother, named themselves out of the daughter. First of all, hate. And last of all, death. When the spirit spoke out of the little girl, I turned to the mother and I said, Is that your daughter's voice that you're listening to? And she said, It isn't even like my daughter's voice. And when the spirit of death came out of that little girl, it was exactly as with the mother. She was on her back, on the floor, like a dead person, cold. And then life flowed in. She rose up. Now, two years later, I was able to check this star 
that the girl was doing all right at school and was no longer considered retarded. That's about as much checkup as I can give you on that particular case. Well, that was my private baptism of fire. It was my private initiation into this. Please stop your machine at this point and turn the tape over. <laughs>